If God is good to his people, then why are the wicked prospering? If God is good to those who are pure in heart, then why do the arrogant succeed? And why do I envy their success? Why is it that the wicked seem to have more success and less troubles than those devoted to God? How can they be happy and satisfied without him? Would I be better off if I joined them? You might have asked these questions before. Though as Christians we know God's goodness towards us, there are still questions we face and dilemmas that trouble us. Over the past two weeks, Joseph has addressed two of these, one being troubled by our thoughts and the other being troubled by our sin. And over the next two weeks, God willing, we will be looking at being troubled by our doubts. Psalm 73 is all about this. Asaph, the writer of the psalm, um, was head of one of the temple choirs in, in the time of David. He led the people in praise to the Lord. However, he wrestled with doubt and envy. He wasn't sure that the living God was really worth it. He knew the goodness of God. He knew of his covenant faithfulness to his people. And yet he found himself envying the wicked. He envied their ease of living, their prosperity, their wealth. He envied their lifestyle without God. Perhaps you can empathize with his dilemma. Maybe you have felt envious of the wicked too. Even though you have God's word and his promises and you rejoice in the gospel, there is still a pull within you towards the world. There is something attractive about their lives, an ease of living, wealth and fame, or life without struggles. Such an appearance of prosperity is alluring and challenging. Wouldn't it be easier to just live like them? Wouldn't it bring more joy, more peace, more prosperity to have what they have? Well, what we're going to see tonight is that though the wicked prosper, their prosperity is not real prosperity. Their arrogance is completely unfounded and their destiny is not to be desired. When we look from our perspective, they look like they're the blessed ones. But when we see their prosperity from God's perspective, well, then we see their true end. But then I'll also be preaching on this psalm next week. Um, And there we will see that for those who know God, we know true prosperity. As it says in verse 26, God is the strength of our hearts. He is our portion forever. The nearness of God is our good. He is our chief delight. The struggle then that this psalm presents is a struggle to be wholly satisfied in God that we would not fall into prospering, uh, into envying the wicked, and that we would delight in our prosperity, particularly as it is found in Jesus Christ. So let's begin in verse 1, and where we see Asaph's dilemma. Asaph's dilemma. Asaph here begins with this great affirmation of the goodness of God to Israel. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
This statement tells us this is a man of faith. He is a firm believer in the Lord. Before he says anything else, Asaph clearly proclaims the goodness of God to his people. He emphatically says it there, right at the beginning. Surely, surely God is good. He is sure of this. He hasn't a shadow of a doubt. God is good. And he was good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This was a nation who, in Asaph's day, were devoted to God. Their hearts were pure and undivided. They were loyal to the Lord their God in keeping his covenant with them. And so Asaph is living in a time where the people around him were faithful to God. They were enjoying his blessings. We actually see this more in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and I'd like us to turn there. So please turn, uh, keep a finger in page 73 on Psalm 73. Um, 1 Chronicles 16 is on page 470 in the Church Bibles and 685 in the Chinese Bibles. So 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Okay, so in this passage, we see that the people of God are rejoicing because the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back to Jerusalem. Here we see Asaph and his associates singing a psalm of David, a psalm of thanks to the Lord. And I want us to see that Asaph was clearly rejoicing in God and his goodness. He would truly believe God's word and his promises. So please look with me at verses 14 to 18. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenants forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. So you see, Asaph here, he knew God's covenant to Israel. He knew, as it says in verse 18, that God had given them a great inheritance, the land of Canaan. God was so good to his people. He was true to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. And as we've been looking on the Sunday mornings, um, this is the name that he's been proclaimed, the name that Moses knew from him is a name that is above all others. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the God of Asaph. And for many of us here tonight, this is our God. We have known his goodness towards us in his son, Jesus Christ. Just as Asaph knew God in the old covenant, we now know know him through the new covenant. We know what it's like to have our sins forgiven, to have our hearts sprinkled clean by Jesus' blood. We can rejoice that we are co-heirs with Christ of his inheritance. We have been set apart for him, to be devoted to him. This is good truth, isn't it? I'm sure many of us here believe this. But have you ever doubted these things? 
Have you ever looked at the world and thought, perhaps they have it better? This was Asaph's dilemma. Please turn back with me to the psalm and we'll now look at verses 2 and 3. There it says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looked at the goodness of God to Israel and all the blessings and how he had come to inherit them. But then he looked at the wicked and he was perplexed. They were prospering too. But doesn't God the Lord punish the wicked? He is a compassionate and gracious, he's compassionate and gracious to Israel. But doesn't he judge the nations? But the wicked were prospering. They were living peacefully without any fear of the judgment of God. They sinned in abundance and it seemed like they were getting away with it. All of this troubled Asaph. He's very honest, isn't he? He's not trying to cover up how he felt in fear that other believers would look down on him. He simply told it as it was. He struggled to understand their prosperity. Verse 16 even says how it was oppressive to him. It bore him down. It was a burden to him. His heart was heavy and perplexed. And it's not like there was a problem with God. Remember verse 1? He was confident that God was good. The covenant was like a firm rock beneath his feet. Rather, it was his feet which nearly slipped. Verse 2 says how he nearly lost his foothold, or as the ESV puts it, his steps were about to slip. He was about to walk away from the promised inheritance of God to go after the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was ready to pack it all in. He was about to betray the people of God. Look at his attitude in verses 13 and 15 to 15. He considered it vain to have kept his heart pure and to have kept his hands innocent from wrongdoing. He had devoted himself to God, to following the covenant, to loving the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his might. He was faithful to God. And yet, he felt like he was the one under judgment. He describes himself there in verse 14 as, his, as plagued. It felt like he was punished every morning. Following God felt more like suffering than prosperity. And it made him bitter and envious. The wicked seem to have it so much easier. Maybe, maybe he should follow them. Have you faced this temptation to envy the wicked? Maybe you have wrestled with this before. Maybe some of you are wrestling with this right now. You know of God's abundant goodness towards you in the gospel. And yet there is this painful feeling that actually the wicked have it better off. Maybe you're a young Christian. You've been walking with the Lord for a while now, but you were tempted to go back. At first, the Christian life seemed great. There was so much joy, so many new friends, so many new things to learn about God. But now, now it's different. It's become normal, and it's not quite like it seemed to be. It's not as joyful as it was in the beginning, And you still have many of the problems that you had. Even now, you have more. Maybe following Christ wasn't worth it after all. 
Or maybe you've been a Christian for many years now and you've really given your life to Christ. You've been all out. You've resisted the temptation to turn back for years. But now you're at that final hurdle. Now you're beginning to question, was it all really worth it? Have I wasted my life serving God when I could have had so much? Or maybe some of you are in trials right now and the temptation is to take the easy way out. You knew the call to Christ, to follow Christ, was to that of entering into his sufferings. But do I really have to suffer this much? The wicked don't have as nearly as many problems as I do. They always seem to find a way out. Maybe I should leave my struggles and join them. Those situations might describe you. They might not. You might have another reason to envy the wicked. I don't know. But whatever situation your heart is in, and my heart is in, we must be honest about our struggles. The Christian life isn't easy, and we can be tempted to turn our backs on Christ and go back to the world. But we need to be honest with God, with others, and with ourselves. That this life is hard, it's toil, and in that context, the prosperity of the wicked can be a real temptation to us. This leads us on to our second point, um, the, the wicked's prosperity. The wicked's prosperity. In verses 4 to 12, we have Asaph's description of the wicked. Though he was in the promised land, he looked over the fence at the wicked's prosperity and it seemed like the grass was greener on the other side. He looked at the nations around him and considered them to be the truly blessed ones. Despite knowing God, it seemed to Asaph that he was better off without him. The picture is no different today. The view over the fence is just the same. There are obvious differences between the wicked now and back then, but their prosperity is just the same. So as we look through these verses, we will see the same things in our generation. And they can be tempting to us too. As we look, let's ask ourselves the hard question. Do I envy this, even in the slightest? Have I been caught up in longing after the world? Asaph begins his description then in verse 4 by saying that the wicked have no struggles. The Hebrew here actually includes an extra phrase not translated in the NIV, and that's until death. So they have no struggles until death. This is to say that, in general, the wicked have an easy life. On a whole, they do not struggle. Life always seems to be going their way. There might be a few problems here and there, but the picture on a whole is of ease. Many people live this way and even claim at the end of their life to have no regrets whatsoever. And then it says that their bodies are healthy and strong. This is such a big thing today, isn't it? Having a healthy diet, living a long life, keeping fit. These are not necessarily wrong goals, but it's when, but the wicked live for them. They seek long life so that they can enjoy as much possible here. And why wouldn't they? They have no hope of anything after this life. This is all they have. And so for many, good health and a long life are to be desired as that maximizes their time for pleasure. 
Asaph then builds on this in verse 5 by saying that the wicked are free from the burdens common to man and they are not plagued by human ills. Of course, this is not true of every wicked person because even it says there, these burdens are common to man. Humans in all generations, from Asaph's day to ours, have struggled through hardships and illnesses, regardless of whether they have believed in God or not. So there's nothing wrong with desiring to be free from our burdens. Rather, the wicked desire to be free for their own gain. Again, they have no hope of an eternity without suffering. And so to maximise their pleasure, they must minimise their pain. We live in such a privileged society, and yet the wicked live as if they're entitled to it, as if they should be always be prospering. And so hardship and pain are seen as the enemy. The majority can't avoid the burdens of life. But then there are always some who seem to have so few troubles, and they are envied most of all. And then when someone has that easy life, well, they boast in it. Look at verse 6. They wear pride as a necklace, and they are clothed with violence. They are unashamed to boast in themselves and their great life. In fact, they want the world to know how well off they are. They want to show how they are better than others. It's all about them. And it's amazing how such self-obsession can even lead to violence. They will do whatever it takes to get what they want, even if it brings harm to others. Isn't this the particular attitude of our day? People love to express themselves and their identity. Social media is full of picture-perfect lives. Work colleagues compete to see who had the best weekend, the best holiday, the best deal. Students abound in making their voices heard. They are encouraged to be themselves, and no one dares challenge them. Everywhere you go, there is always someone on a rooftop proclaiming the good news of me. And why is this? Because of their sinful hearts. See verse 7. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. The Hebrew here actually gets across the idea that they have an insatiable appetite for sin. Their eyes lust for luxury, or as it literally says, their eyes bulge with fatness. The very identity of the wicked is caught up with their hunger for prosperity. And so there are no limits to the evil that they will do. And then verse 8 again speaks of their pride. But this time, as they put down those who are below them, they scoff and deride the weak. We live in a culture which claims to be tolerant, to be accepting of all. And yet at the same time, it assumes all authority on matters of morality. If you don't agree with their standards, if you want to be devoted to God, then expect their oppression. All of this comes to a climax in verse 9. Their mouths lay claim to the heavens and the earth to take possession of them. I think the ESV translates the second half of this better. It says, their tongue struts through the earth. The arrogant struts around as if they own the world, as if they are in charge as if their view of reality is the real reality. They determine what is good and what is evil. They say how we ought to live. They claim to know how to truly prosper. And the world listens. See verse 10. 
Therefore, their people turn to them. The wisdom of the world is attractive to many. Those who prosper the most get to determine the truth, and everyone below follows along as if they have knowledge. The second half of the verse describes how people drink up their wisdom like water in abundance. The wicked naturally worship success. There are so many today who are well off, famous in some kind of way. It's so easy for them to gather massive followings. People are drawn to their lifestyles. They are drawn to their success. Bookshops abound with the latest autobiographies of some celebrity boasting of their wonderful life. Endless TV programs, YouTube videos and Instagram posts parade the lifestyles of the rich and famous and people lap it all up. And what do they think of God? Well, they claim he is foolish. Look with me at verse 11. They challenge God. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? How can he say what is right and what is wrong? We prosper in our ways. He calls it evil, we call it good. Who cares about God? We are fine on ourselves. The wicked have always thought nothing of God, and they want nothing to do with him. Then, verse 12, that's a summary of this section. This is what the wicked are like. They are always carefree, living at ease, increasing in wealth, filling themselves with worldly pleasures, and they're boasting in it. They lay claim to the universe as if they own it, setting themselves up as the source of knowledge, mocking the God who created them. Do you envy this? Perhaps the explicit sin does not sound at all appealing to you, but the lifestyle, the ease, that sounds alluring. Do you wish that your life was easier, that you had less struggles, that you were healthier and stronger? Do you wish that you could gain the wicked's prosperity? Would you drink from their streams or even become one for others? Are your feet about to slip? Or let's look at it another way. Do you compare your life to those around you, those in the world? And does it lead you to doubt God's goodness? Are you tempted to doubt his sovereignty over it all? The wicked always seem to prosper. Even when they act foolishly, they still seem to get away with it. Does God really know what is good for me? Can I really trust him? The temptation to envy the wicked and to doubt God's goodness is a real temptation. The attack might come from within, from your desires, tempting you to turn away from the living God and drink from the waters of the world. Or temptations might come from Satan and the world, mocking you, bearing you down, till you begin to doubt whether following God is really worth it in the first place. The prosperity of the wicked will always bring difficulties for God's people in one form or another. But their prosperity is not real prosperity. If we look from our perspective, we will only become discouraged. But when we see from God's perspective, then we will see aright. Here is my final point. The heavenly perspective. The heavenly perspective. Look with me to verses 16 and 17, where we will see Asaph finally coming to see the truth. 
When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. All that time Asaph was looking at the wicked, he was perplexed. But as soon as he came to the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth, then he saw their end. Then he saw that God was in control. Look with me to verses 18 to 20. This is the de- Asaph seeing how God was in control. Surely you, that's God who Asaph is speaking about. Surely God will place them on slippery ground. He casts them down to ruin. They may stand tall now, but in their pride they will fall far. Surely he knows their wickedness. Surely he will bring destruction upon them. Like a dream when one awakes, in the flash of a moment, the Lord will arise and despise them as if they were a fantasy. Their claims are just make-belief. Their prosperity is nothing. Do you see the destiny of the wicked? Those who reject God in this life will be rejected by him. Jesus will come to judge the wicked, so do not doubt his coming. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, if you live for this world and reject God, then any prosperity you have here will be gone in an instant, and you will have no escape from the wrath to come. The state of your earthly prosperity is nothing compared to the state of your heart before God. Turn to Jesus tonight and see your sin punished in his body on the cross. He is your only way of escape. But then to the Christian who has been wrestling with envy, take heart that there is a struggle within you. Take heart that this temptation has not yet obtained full victory over you. But now heed the warning. Do not go after their prosperity. No matter what situation you are in, Look past their prosperity to their final end. If you abandon God now, if you go back to the world and expect him to still accept you on the final day, then you will hear those awful words, I never knew you. Unbeliever and believer, flee from the wrath to come and come to something so much greater. Come and know Jesus Christ. He is true prosperity. Embrace him as your strength and your portion. He has a firm grip on you. He is your security. Though this life might be full of hardships, though all who seek to follow Christ will suffer, he will hold you fast. He will guide you with his counsel and afterwards take you to glory. Young Christian, he is worth it. Older Christian, keep pressing on. Struggling Christian, lean upon him. Remember that Christ sympathizes with you in your weakness. He knows your struggles with envy. Remember how Satan tempted him in the wilderness? There he showed Jesus the whole world and offered it to him at the cost of worshipping him. This same Jesus who overcame Satan, now intercedes for you in heaven. Who do you have in heaven but him? And earth has nothing you desire for you besides him. 
Your flesh and your heart may fail, but he is the strength of your heart. He is your portion forever. So, tonight, if you are tempted to envy the wicked, or if you have doubted God's goodness, if you have turned back to the world for pleasure, or if you have only ever known it, then turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of this earth, your hardships, your struggles and temptations, they will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, a blinged out corpse, but now God has made you alive together with Christ Jesus and given you every spiritual blessing in him. Next week, we'll be looking more at those spiritual blessings. We'll dig deep into verses 23 to 28. But tonight, I shall leave you with this. Do not envy the wicked, for their prosperity is not real prosperity. Their end is destruction, but your end is glory. Their portion is this world, but God is your portion. Christ is your portion. Find your prosperity in him.